Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. After discussing with cabinet and caucus, after consultation with premiers from all provinces and territories, after speaking with opposition leaders, the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. I want to be very clear. The scope of these measures will be time-limited, geographically targeted, as well as reasonable and proportionate to the threats they are meant to address. That was the voice of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing his government would invoke emergency powers to deal with protests that started in Canada in late January as a populist freedom convoy of demonstrators opposed to vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers. The protests have evolved over the last couple of weeks into a campaign against all coronavirus measures and against the policies of the Prime Minister. They've included encampments and blockades in Ottawa, Coots, Alberta, and Windsor, and have drawn some far-right agitators. The offline protests are, of course, being encouraged and supported by online activity, which has reportedly included substantial foreign and inauthentic activity on social media and on fundraising platforms. Yesterday, the New York Times reported that while many of the largest donors supporting the protests are wealthy Canadians, hacks data from the GiveSendGo crowdfunding platform suggests that nearly half of the donations on that site originated in the U.S. Reporters at the website Grid also found involvement by anonymous actors and money from Canadian donors mingling with donations from right-wing political figures in the U.S. They also found that the entity behind multiple large Facebook groups supporting the protests was an unknown person or persons who used the Facebook account of a Missouri woman who said her account on the platform had been stolen. Likewise, Facebook told NBC News that some groups promoting American trucker convoys on the platform are being run by fake accounts operated by content mills in Vietnam, Bangladesh, Romania, and several other countries. To discuss the protests and the relationship between topics like networked activism, social media manipulation, extremism, and law enforcement, as well as the potential for Canadian convoys to inspire similar actions in the U.S., where right-wing media personalities have embraced the idea, I spoke with two experts, one in Toronto and one in Boston. Hi, I'm Joan Donovan. I'm the research director and the director of the Technology and Social Change Project at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Amarnath Amrasingham, uh, assistant professor in the School of Religion and cross-listed to the School of Political Studies at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. Amarnath, what is happening today with this situation in Canada? I understand that Justin Trudeau has just invoked emergency powers. Yeah. So, I mean, people are still on the ground in Ottawa as they were over the last um, several weeks. Uh, yesterday, about 400 kilometers or 600 kilometers east of Ottawa in Windsor, Ontario, which is the border town with Detroit, um, where about, you know, 500 to 700 million dollars of trade dollars goes through uh, the, the borders with Detroit and Sarnia. 
they finally cleared that uh, bridge out of protesters. First, the trucks were asked to be moved. And then once the trucks left, the people stayed. And that took another several hours to convince the people to leave. But um, as of this morning, the trucks are flowing again across the bridge. And so that's that's good. I think there was a lot of angry phone calls probably that came from the United States about that to the Canadian government. And on the Ottawa side, they're still on the ground there. there. There's some negotiations to maybe move them to a particular quarter of Ottawa where they where they can remain without blocking uh, the rest of the rest of the city and so on. Um, the other kind of important spot is Coots, Alberta, which is across from uh, Montana in in the U.S. Um, they just made an arrest earlier this morning. Uh, with some truck that had about 13 guns in it and some explosives. And so there was some concern about what that was about. Um, But the protest overall, Canada-wide, is still kind of chugging along. Uh, The emergency powers uh, just invoked about 20 minutes ago before I got on this call uh, basically gives them a whole host of new powers to make sure that corporate accounts are frozen from these individuals. Uh, Insurance on these vehicles could be suspended if they're used. Um, Gives them new powers to kind of uh, treat this uh, like a kind of terrorism financing perspective almost. Um, and so we'll be seeing how all of this kind of actually plays out. So you've, you've given us a sense of what's happening in those three locations. The video from the border crossing in Windsor at this weekend suggested that the Canadian officials are, are taking a, a, a very patient perspective with these protests, but yet the sort of decision at the federal level to institute these emergency powers suggests that that patience may be running out. What do you make of the government's handling of this so far? The policing situation has always been a problem from day one. I think I think on the one hand, um, my, my kind of theory is that particularly Ottawa police um, treated this as a kind of January 6th situation. They, you know, they emailed a lot of MPs um, encouraging them to kind of be in secure situation, uh, secure places. They secured the parliament buildings because they thought something was going to happen there. Um, And by doing that, they basically forgot about the streets, right? And so the trucks basically parked and stayed and they had cookouts and live music and dance parties. And it just kind of became became an encampment of, of, of sorts. Following on from that, you had kids about, you know, there's an estimate that one in four trucks that were parked in downtown Ottawa had children sleeping in the in the cabs. Um, and so that obviously influences the policing decisions that, that are being made. Same thing was true in Windsor. There were kids with strollers kicking soccer balls around the streets and so on. And so there's a, there was a real concern, I think, of this getting out of hand and resulting in uh, some sort of tragedy. Um, so I think that influenced uh, some of the policing choices being made. That's kind of the optimistic outlook. The 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 pessimist of, of, of in Canada would probably say that there is a solid chunk of people in policing services across Canada who are kind of supportive of the convoy, um, who are uh, kind of see eye to eye with the objectives of the convoy, or at least the grievances of the convoy. And that also influences how kind of the policing stance, the aggressiveness of, or the lack of aggressiveness played out on the streets as well. Um, so I think I think the there's a bit of truth to both of that. We I mean, we definitely saw some police officers shaking hands and uh, one a few were caught on video basically saying that, you know, they, they wish they could be there and things like that. And so um, I think there's there's an element of truth to both sides. But um, I think the policing response from from the beginning uh, was rightly criticized on all fronts. I noticed you tweeting earlier today about the populist goals, quote unquote, of of the movement. Um, And maybe we can talk about that uh, as we move through the conversation. But is it fair to say that like January 6th, 
this movement has a wide range of people involved in it. Uh, you've got sort of you know your typical kind of populist individuals who may or may not have views that are particularly objectionable. Um, and then you've got, as you say, uh, some more militant extremists who may have different ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think the organizing organizers of the convoy are people I would squarely put on the extremism camp. I mean, these are people who uh, were trying to start militias across Canada, who were on Holocaust denial tours, um, are were espousing white nationalist sentiments, and 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 things like that. So these are the people who are driving the organizing side of things as well as the fundraising side of things. And so I'm pretty comfortable saying that cohort is extremist in outlook and probably objective. What I don't want to say, which which I think has led some people to say, oh, this is a neo-Nazi rally or this is a far-right rally, which I don't think is accurate. I think there is a, you know, particularly three years into the pandemic and pandemic responses, there is a kind of exhaustion that has set in in the Canadian public. There are a lot of people who've lost jobs. There's a lot of people who've had their businesses closed, who've struggled in very different ways, who are also out there, who are also protesting. The challenge for me, of course, is the old deal breaker question, right? Is that, yes, you're on the streets protesting your concerns, but once you see a Nazi flag, a Confederate flag, white nationalist sentiment, um, at which point do you say, hey, maybe I should go home. This is not something I want my... Uh, name associated with or, or or something to be a part of. And so that, I think, um, is a bit of an indictment of, of the rest of the people who were there is that they saw what these guys were saying, what these guys were about, and kind of put it to the side and continued to stay there. But I think it's still fair to say that the vast majority of them aren't extremists. They're, they're definitely kind of bought into the broader populist sentiment um, that the elite in Ottawa aren't really caring about uh, the disaffected and, and the working class people in Canada and that that there's some kind of shadowy deal going on to kind of, you know, uh, to make them, give them a hard time, et cetera. And so I, I think there's an element, uh, there's elements of both uh, involved in the protest. Joan, I want to bring you in and also just ask you, you've been observing the relationship between what's happening in Canada with right-wing extremists in the United States um, and how those dialogues and discourse are moving across the border on the internet. What's top of mind for you today? I think one of the things that we've been trying to deduce over on my research team is to what degree engagement online is being faked and what proportion of that that fake uh, engagement is driving more clicks, likes, and shares of actual engagement, right? We have a, we have a serious problem here where there are there's authentic protesters with authentic grievances, very similar to what we saw with January 6th, which is that by and large, those who are airing their opinions online are not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything illegal. We, you know, seeing all the calls for, for rounding them up. Uh, this is not something that is good in a democratic society. I think that people should be able to air their uh, grievances and be heard and protest. Um, but when you look at it online, there's a lot of things going on that are essentially the tools of Facebook being used, uh, similar to ways that we saw Stop the Seal groups growing, where there's some admin accounts that are using fake pictures, they're spamming these groups. There's some growth hacking techniques that are being employed so that these groups balloon to six, seven hundred thousand people. Um, 
but on top of that, uh, one thing that I've been listening to is AM radio. Because there are a few AM radio hosts that are nationally syndicated that are really calling for uh, a major U.S. convoy that would descend on D.C. on March 5th. And I don't know if it's going to be the way that they're describing it, but I do know that it is getting people excited about participation in, you know, in a convoy type protest. Uh, but it's interesting to see the role the state is playing here, which is to say that um, we've seen network protests in the past. We've seen uh, similar fundraising in the past with, you know, these different platforms and people donating, you know, just by using their credit card. But we have to ask the question, well, what makes this different? Right. We're not we shouldn't equivocate and say this looks like that therefore is the same we have to think about what makes this different what kind of values and animosities are being stirred up and then of course if it is the case that people are peacefully protesting and you know and they're you know going without incident once uh, the police do finally uh, crack down then I think that that's a, a fair resolution, but at the same time, we have to think about the online world is slightly different because there is a lot of astroturfing happening and a lot of use of either accounts that were faked or hacked in some way. And so, unfortunately, the online world, there's no rules <laughs> and not a lot of consequences, which is where we see quite a bit of uh, the major issues, um, whereas in the offline world, the consequences are very high, uh, very dangerous, but it's really difficult to tie those two worlds together uh, in terms of consequences, especially around inciting rhetoric. Amaneth, are you able to hear the volume of the American media's enthusiasm for these protests in Canada above the border? I mean, I've been hearing it for a while now. So like when Benjamin Dichter, who's one of the organizers of the of the convoy, went on Tucker Carlson, um, I immediately texted a friend of mine saying this is a this is a bit of a game changer. Right. I mean, their their fundraising went through the roof. Their follower accounts went through the roof. They became these minor kind of influencers and celebrities within this movement. People were walking up to them on the street, shaking their hand and like, I saw you on Tucker and blah, blah, blah. And and so as, as, as soon as kind of, uh, you know, America, I think all it, it was destined to see the convoy and it's continuing to see the convoy through the lens of the American culture wars, right? And, and so it's not necessarily about Canada. It's about, oh, this is a populist movement. It's against mandates. Trudeau is a communist. And so um, it, it's seen through the lens of, of, of arguments already happening uh, in the US. And then when Fox News gets a hold of it, particularly Hannity and particularly Tucker, um, it does have an impact. I mean, they, they um, I remember watching Benjamin Dichter. He was giddy with excitement to even talk to Tucker, right? Like, uh, I think... Um, the influence of some of these guys on these movements is huge. And um, once they get that stamp of approval from uh, kind of Fox News or Rebel News, which is kind of our equivalent here, not as huge, but uh, still influential, um, that it, it creates a new network of individuals who are nouveau influencers, right? They go from fringe people that nobody cares about to all of a sudden having 300,000 followers on Facebook and 
people walking up to them on the street shaking their hand and so um that i think has a long term impact right is it because now you now you're invested now your reputation is invested your credibility is invested sometimes your finances are invested in perpetuating these movements and perpetuating this kind of uh rhetoric and this kind of excitement and so there's a, once you build people up like that there's a longevity there's a threat of longevity that's built in that lasts much uh longer than if the protest ends tomorrow for example and Jim, we've seen that with other movements in this regard. It's kind of capacity building that comes out of it, uh, even if the objective of the particular protest may not be met. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, media coverage, especially national media coverage, mobilizes a lot of people. Media mobilizes full stop. And this is why the internet um, and social media in 2011 was such a global revolution in the sense that you had, you know, something happen in Tunisia where a, a vendor had set himself on fire, self-immolated, um, and then that spread to uh, local areas and then eventually to a call uh, in Egypt and then to uh, Europe and Spain and in particular in Spain and then uh, to Occupy Wall Street in Boston. And Everywhere in 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 uh, New York, but also across um, across the United States, and so I think everywhere and across Canada too, I should say, everywhere that we've seen this network phenomenon of protest organization, it's it's very organic looking on the surface. In in so far as in 2011, people didn't have access to technologies like. Uh, botnets, for instance, or um, any of these professional tools or advertising that would compel interest in in what then were grassroots movements. And so now what we're seeing in particular is that if something does become national media, we do see that quick bounce of interest. People do flock to those Facebook pages, they flock to the the YouTube videos, and it does bring people out of their homes and into the streets if they're close enough to become part of that. And we've seen it happen time and time again, years and years on end. The issue here, though, I think, is the way in which the protesters' messages are getting muddled as national media in the U.S. picks it up. Amareth is correct in pointing out that it becomes less and less about Canada it becomes less and less about Canadian truckers uh, and more and more about the U.S. culture war around, you know, in some respects, it goes even beyond MAGA, like the way in which trucking represents, you know, the fossil fuel industry. It represents a, a kind of returning to a, a way of life um, in the U.S. that's something that's been under fire by climate activists, for instance. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see the U.S. people start to adopt these tactics and then we see the narrative get further and further away from where it originated, which was with this uh, smaller group of truckers that didn't want to be hemmed in by these mandates and therefore were we're using the only resources they really had, which are the trucks themselves, to to create an uproar. And and in the U.S., I think you're going to see a 
a panoply of, of different tactics and blockades, but also uh, you're going to see that loss of the message in short order. I mean, what J- Joan's saying is spot on in the, in the sense of uh, that there's always been, I mean, built into these populist movements, there's always a romanticism around these producers, right? People who are like driving, really, truly driving the economy, the truck drivers, the the coal miners and all these work, uh, the, the kind of working class community who are the true Americans and the true Canadians. And there's always this kind of romanticism around them, and especially when they're angry about something. Um, and so it, it was kind of inevitable for both of these narratives, particularly in the US and Canada, to kind of mesh um, seamlessly. I will be interesting. It will be interesting to see how it plays out in the US if it ever gets off the ground properly in terms of the kind of narratives that they use, especially since, as, as far as I understand it, there aren't really any federal mandates in the US. Um, and, and so this anti-mandate rhetoric, I'm not sure um, how that all fits together. Have the platforms learned any lessons? I mean, we just had, of course, Stop the Steal in the U.S. We just had uh, this phenomenon here. Do you think they've learned any lessons at all in the last uh, year or two years or, or, or even five years? Um, and what would you ask them to do today? Listen, we've been there. We've been, they know, they know, they know, they know. Um, What's interesting is, you know, as these things flare up and, and, you know, we have these, the evidence from the whistleblower papers suggesting that Facebook was putting their, their thumb on the scales here and there to make sure that certain content did circulate and other content didn't. And um, particularly thumb on the scales for content that doesn't circulate. I think broadly conceived, we actually have to think about these platforms differently than they would want us to think about them. These are enablers, right? The platforms themselves create the conditions under which information can travel at that scale for better and worse, right? And so you, on the one hand, would hope that these companies would be more pro-civil rights, pro-allowing people to be heard, but also realizing that there's forms of speech that are inciting, there are forms of speech that are hate speech, there are forms of of organizing that are dangerous. And it's it's, it's a really hard thing, because if we're asking them to police the product that they built, then we're saying at the same time that technology is not a great liberator, it is not a tool of democracy. It is just another product like other products and that people who use it should know what are the rules the company is going to make you abide by. And then those companies have to enforce those rules. However, I think these platforms have gotten themselves so wrapped up in the language and the marketing of free speech and the marketing of their potential to be serving of democratic discourse, that they really uh, misunderstand that we only get to these positions where extremists are using these tools to plot an insurrection uh, because the technology allows it and the technology supports it. And so I don't think that these companies um, have learned their lesson. I also think they're way out of scale with their capacity to do good moderation uh, and fair moderation as well. 
And so, I don't know. I don't work for Facebook. I don't work for Twitter. I don't work for YouTube. But um, if I did work there, I would say, you know, figure out who the community is that you want to serve and support and get more specific about what kinds of contents you think are good uh, and representative of your product and focus on that, cultivate it, develop it. Um, And we've seen similar things happen on other platforms where you just don't get the same scale and volume of misinformation floating around because the community is different, the moderation tools are different, and the investments up front in making sure that you serve a smaller audience is built into the business model. But right now, I don't think that platforms that aspire to be everything to anyone are really going to survive this next iteration of uh, misinformation and information warfare. I mean, I think the the alternative platforms, I, I agree with everything Joan said, and then the, the alternative platforms are also quite tricky here because i mean a lot of the chatter is actually not on the mainstream platforms right there it, it, it's primarily on platforms like telegram where uh i mean telegram never comes to the table of any of these meetings uh, to talk about uh, their own problems um and it there's a lot of foreign conversation there's people from brazil posting australia posting the uk posting um and and those and there's a you can see like once in a while there will be people kind of slowly nudging towards violence towards standing your ground and you know uh, and kind of pushing people into more extreme stances and so that's an entirely separate problem that also exists and and it's the same camp as you know gab and parlor and other other things that we've dealt with I think for Facebook, I mean, I was quite surprised. I mean, we've talked about this before, Justin, is, is um, you know, how easily sometimes they take down certain social movements. Uh, the Sheikh Jarrah hashtags were taken down. You know, a lot of Tamil activism was taken down. But Pat King, who's the organizer, a white nationalist organizer of the convoy, was taken down, I think, just yesterday, right? And so he was allowed to... Uh, push all kinds of content, build up his following to something like 280,000 page likes, and um, it was only quite recently, well into well into the convoy, that that some I guess he tripped some wire and and decided, and you know they took him down. And so a lot of these guys do thrive on these platforms um, untouched, I think. And then and if I'm if I'm to be charitable, I would say Facebook has a really hard time with what to do with movements like this. And they've always had a bit of a hard time. And MAGA, MAGA was a good example of this too, is where that line between extremism, misinformation and, and free speech actually falls. It's easy to make a decision like that with ISIS or Al Qaeda or openly neo-Nazi groups, but this kind of generic, you know, anti-refugee content, anti-immigrant content, they, 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 they've always kind of failed when the movement has been on that um been on that barrier and so i think they'll continue to struggle with that it strikes me we've seen some illiberal perspectives um even coming from the left on this movement in canada which has been a little bit of a surprise and it it may be slightly in in response to january 6th um the sort of broad brush that 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 folks do want to paint you know all of these protesters with uh, at this stage, do you, do you sense that there's any problem there? Are you seeing that in Canada or uh, Joan, are you seeing anything like that with regard to what's happening more broadly in the U S I mean, I, you know, in some respects I've been accused of it in, in, you know, when I, 
you know, have spoken up about how odorous the the planning for January 6th was online and how easy it was to see that this was going to tilt into mass violence. People are like, well, how do you support protesters? And then, you know, go out and say, these people are somehow uh, different. But if you look at the actual content, right, there is, it is very easy to see that movements use social media to coordinate. All movements do that in the contemporary movement. All movements used, you know, telephones or radio, right? Like it depends on the media of the moment. But using social media to get organized isn't what the call for sanctions or penalties is about. It's really about the content in which people are sharing. And and if you can look on a place like Parlor and search the hashtag like 1776, where people are saying, you know, January 6th is going to be our 1776. And you have, you know, and you know what that is and what that sentiment is, you know, that's all fair speech. But when it tilts into, you know, people cheering in the Capitol, hang Mike Pence, that's different. That's very different. Right. And so I think that when people do call for arrests of, of people who are doing certain kind of things as part of their protest repertoire, you also have to keep a very keen eye on um, distinctions that are very different, right? Like not, uh, you want to look at the content, you want to look at the, the calls to action, you want to look at the kinds of violence, and you want to say, okay, this is really dangerous, or uh, this looks like protests we've seen in the past. And, you know, just as there's, you don't want to punch right, if you're on the right, you don't want to punch left, if you're on the left, right, that there is this broad feeling about solidarity. There's also been this injunction around supporting, supporting statements like saying, you know, I'm an anti-fascist. Right. Well, in what world does saying I'm an anti-fascist become incredibly controversial? Well, in a world where Trump and his allies are defining what it means to be anti-fascist. Right. At that, if you look online, they're the ones talking about Antifa. They're the ones defining what it is. Even if you look at the astroturfing around critical race theory, if you look online, it's being defined wholly by the right. And there's a lot of attempts to try to correct the record, but it just fails in comparison. And so I think that, you know, as we start to make calls for people to be held to account for their actions, we still live in a very legalistic society that blames the individual, right? And so when it comes to consequences online, the worst thing that's going to happen to you online is you're going to lose your account. Uh, but the worst thing that might happen to you uh, at a protest is, is terrible. And so I do hold out more compassion for the people who put themselves on the line um, in instances of mass protest. But I also draw really clear line about, well, what are their motives? Uh, What are they trying to change? And are they using violence as a means to that end? And if they are, I'll call it out. Yeah, I I mean, to your earlier question, I think that I mean, it it is something that has surprised me a little bit. I I think part of it comes from 
what a lot of people feel is a kind of hypocrisy from a policing standpoint. You know, we have we've had several indigenous protests in Canada, which have um, ended in mass arrests, quite violent and aggressive responses from the police. We've had BLM protests here, which have um, been met with force and 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 violence. We saw Occupy um, uh, here and Idle No More, which is another indigenous protest, end in you know similar kind of aggressive stances by the police. And then you know, meanwhile. Uh, several hundred trucks are allowed to slowly roll into their capital city and just kind of hang out there for weeks and have dance parties and cookouts. And so there's there's a visceral reaction to that hypocrisy to then say, well, we should treat these people like these other people have been treated. Um, instead of saying we should not treat those people, <laughs> these people uh, like, or we should treat I don't know more in BLM like we're treating the truckers, right? Which is, I think, my which is my approach is 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 not to expand the aggressive uh, push of the police, not to expand national security, not to expand the national security net, and not to expand the policing net, but to keep it limited when possible, right? And so the hypocrisy I think has led people in one direction, whereas I think they should actually go in the opposite direction to say let's be consistent in how policing is is actually working out here. Part of the reason for that is the way in which this protest has been painted sometimes by you know certain people online as this kind of neo-nazi rally or far-right rally which then puts the conversation into of course you should be arresting them and bringing out the guns and on all this stuff like why would you let nazis just hang out in downtown ottawa the problem is they're not all nazis and you know they're and, and so so the i think a lot of the nuance and kind of the moral consistency is is lost very quickly in these conversations and it just ends up being um people shouting in, into the void and just a word on crackdowns too because i think it's really important that Sociology, uh, sociologists have studied this for years and um, decades even. And when police violence begets more violence. And so often when you see a protest at a tipping point, it usually tips into riot or chaos when police show force first. And it's been like that since the, you know, probably as long as, as policing has existed. But if you think about it in terms of narrative and who owns the narrative and who gets to tell those stories about protests erupt in violence, how many times have we read that headline, right? And if you don't think about the precipitating factors in which uh, that can occur, then we're likely to misplace the blame on uh, protest movements who usually are being aggressed upon uh, multiple times before there is some kind of clapback. And so I think it's important that we, we also think about exactly like who are at these protests? What are they trying to prove? Is that within the realm of normal political activity? And if there is this undercurrent or underbelly of malicious or malevolent organizing um, that is, you know, about infrastructuring the far right or, or grifting off the, off the movement, there should be other ways of, of approaching that and either investigating it or, or making arrests in, a, in an individual capacity. I'm not going to make ask either of you to make predictions about this particular situation. Uh, things could be very different tomorrow, given this emergency order. But perhaps just something you're looking out for um, over the next few days, what you're watching for, 
Uh, Amarnath, maybe in Canada and Joan, what you might be looking for with regard to the potential spread of this phenomenon in the U.S.? I'll be looking largely for what the organizers say. Um, how are they responding to it? Um, is there factionalism setting in within the organizers? Uh, I've, I've kind of been anticipating that that happens eventually, uh, either squabbles over money because they've raised tens of millions of dollars or some sort of ego clash or now uh, some sort of disagreement around related to how, how to respond to these emergency powers, et cetera. Um, so I think that we might see some factionalism within the leadership, which could mean that a bunch of people go home, others become more radicalized and, and, and hang around that way. Uh, and so I'll, I'll be interested to see how um, kind of the influencer class, if I can call them that, actually responds to uh, this emergency, emergency powers as we go forward in the next couple of days. Yeah, I think from my perspective, the U.S. right has a lot to win by promoting the meme of the convoy, by getting involved, by asking people to put a lot on the line in the U.S. to be part of a convoy. There's this old quote from Noam Chomsky, I think. I might be spreading misinformation, but I think it's Chomsky about tactics having an expiration date, which is to say that the police are learning every day how to counter this movement, right? And so it could be the case that in the U.S., the convoy that gets going they're arrested on the spot and their insurance is revoked and their trucks are impounded and they don't make it to DC or they get arrested in the middle of the night in, you know, Arkansas or wherever their route is. Right. And so what you're probably going to see in the United States is a very networked, but distributed police response to preventing something like this happening. But I do imagine that there will be certain pockets and sympathies of police that do believe strongly in the convoy, believe strongly in the message, and will make it a public issue that they're not going to police the convoy. In my like worst case scenario is this brings together a coalition of folks that we haven't seen get together since January 6th. So you have truckers driving, you have militias protecting the trucker convoys, you have very uh, heavily armed folks traveling in caravan with one another to, to bring this to DC, right? That's like, that's my worst fear about where this goes. Uh, but, but all the while, we gotta stay um, attuned to what's happening online. Aaron Gallagher, who's one of our data scientists on our team, has done a miraculous job identifying these networks of Vietnamese accounts. And that was confirmed by Facebook and some of the reporting recently by Ben Collins. Uh, but the degree to which these movements are not organic is something that Facebook has been struggling with since, since the uh, sort of maximum overdrive of 2016. and if they still five years later haven't been able to get a handle on this particular use of their product, then uh, the only recourse I see is government regulation for platforms of this size that we'll have to, you know, we'll have to see what's next. But I don't think the government's going to put up with too many of these protests in the U.S., but we might see 
few more of these mass protests before something sticks in terms of, you know, getting people to change the layers and the infrastructure of, of social media, advance certain interests over others. Well, I appreciate you both talking to me about this today and I'll check back in as we see how things develop. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you, Justin. That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.